0: At this time, I invite you to open a Bible to Genesis, chapter 31. An extended time of prayer means you get a shorter sermon today which I've never heard anyone complain about in, in the, the course of my ministry, if something was kept a little bit shorter. And then you get two weeks off in a row of hearing from me, which is an even better blessing. And I'm looking forward to sitting alongside of you and hearing from Dwayne and then from Scott. But one more time, very briefly, Genesis 31. It's a longer reading and we're gonna uh, cover it and we're gonna read the whole thing but partly because we have an unfolding narrative and it's just hard to cut off a narrative um, when key events take place. So Genesis 31, this is page, found on page 25 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the stripe will be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes. I saw in a dream that the goats that made it with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate, the flock, Are striped and spotted and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. And then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion of inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all of his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs, with tambourine and lyre? Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you've done foolishly. It is in my power to do harm to you. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Which is where I stopped in reading and said, You've been saying a lot for someone who was told not to say anything good or bad. Anyway, verse 30. And now you've gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my God's? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. She said to her father, "'Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, "'for the way of women is upon me.' "'So he searched, but did not find the household gods. "'Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. "'Jacob said to him, "'What is my offense? "'What is my sin that you hotly pursued me? "'For you have felt through all my goods. "'What have you found of all your household goods?' See it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ooze and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. For my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years have I served in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and I. And so Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it that name, And then Jacob called it Gilead, and Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Gilead and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we're out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. And so Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. So as we come to this passage, the first thing that we see is that Jacob is accused and misunderstood. He is accused and misunderstood. The other members of the family are looking at all of the wealth that he's accumulated, and they're saying, basically, He's stolen it. He's cheated our father out of it. He has what he has because of some form of trickery. And Jacob hears this, and it's one thing to hear that, but then to realize, so the person who then has the most authority in the situation, Laban, seems to believe it, to go along with it, so that the accusation then leads to this misunderstanding instead of Laban standing up and saying, whoa, 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 what are you guys accusing him of? I mean, he's been here for 20 years. He did this for 14 years. He did everything that Jacob himself later on eventually articulates is something that Laban himself could have expressed. And he was the person with the most power in the situation to kind of bring about a resolution to this and say, no, 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 don't believe that stuff. But he doesn't, he goes along with it. It says that Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with a favor that he did before. And so he's misunderstood, he's accused. There is an injustice in Laban's lack of favor, in Laban's unwillingness to come to Jacob's own defense and to vouch for him. And so what Jacob realizes, as we had said last time, the healthiest thing that he needs to do is move on from this situation but this is set up in such a way that by the very fact that he's doing well and succeeding he's not receiving the affirmation and the praise and uh, the the joy of his father-in-law that everything that goes well for him is leading to a situation of jealousy and hostility and accusation and misunderstanding And so he had already felt the conviction that he he needed to leave, but now he goes to his wives, which are the daughters of Laban, to tell them the same thing. To say, you should be able to observe this situation, but I have fallen out of favor with your father. And it's time for us to go. And they respond in the affirmative that, yeah, they recognize that and they're willing to go, But here, one of the amazing things that what he's able to testify to them and what they're able to witness to is that though he's been accused by his brothers and misunderstood by God, he has been loved and protected. When he looks back over these 20 years, he has been faithfully loved and supported and protected by God in the midst of everything that he's dealt with. And he can recognize that. That God has been faithful to him. That God has cared for him. That he can't explain where he's at and what he's been able to acquire and what he's been able to do by his own effort. That he's just a really smart business guy. And he's good at relationships and that's why he has this big family. No, we've seen, it's been a pretty Complicated situation. It's been set up to fail from the beginning, almost. But in some amazing way, it hasn't failed yet. They're still there. They're still around. And that, if last week we said, you know, when you're when you're digging into a, a hole and feel like you're getting stuck, and the, the first things you have to do is to say, I don't want to keep digging down. I want to stop. I want to realize that it doesn't have to be this way. That repentance is possible. And here is this realization that God clearly must still have a purpose for me. (laughs) Not only is it that I don't have to be stuck in the situation that I am, but there are about a thousand ways I can think of this having gone worse, me not being around, our family not being intact. And so if I'm still here and I'm still able to observe what's going on and I still have the faculty of my own mind to make choices... I know enough to know it has to be God. He's, he's the difference maker. He is the one who has blessed me and preserved me and kept me. I, it can't be explained in my own merit. So that when he goes to his wives, he doesn't go to them and say, well, see how much better I am than your dad. <laughs> so See why you should come with me. Because No, there, there's nothing in what he shares with them to try to elevate himself and introduce if you will an artificial conflict between their father and him what he gets them to consider is their father's behavior and God's that can they themselves recognize that God is in fact with him that God has loved him that God has protected them and if they go with him it's not that they're going under this new guy who has it all together and can do everything that he promises but that he has the promise and the protection of God himself. And that that's ultimately what they have to consider and decide between. But he can look back and recognize it. Thankfully, both of them can look back and recognize the same thing. And then he talks about a dream that he had, where in that dream, God made clear to him how he had been faithful to him and reminded him of something that had happened 20 years earlier. So that it's in the dream where God himself says, I am the God of Bethel, which points back to 20 years before when Jacob was on his way to this land, but he was in the middle of the wilderness, all alone, no one around him to protect him, no livestock to, uh, to claim anything from, on run from his father. And then in that moment, when God spoke to him in a dream, he made a vow and said, God, if you will be with me, if you will protect me, I promise I'll serve you. And God reminds him of that incident, reminds him of the vow that he made, of the pillar that he anointed, and basically says, have I not been with you this whole time? Have I not kept up my end of the agreement? my promise to you. I'm the God of Bethel. What we see contrasted then though in the story is that faithfulness on God's part and then Rachel as they're about to leave takes all of the household gods out of her father's house. And so we get this amazing contrast between the God of Bethel and the household gods. And it's a, it's a great description in a narrative form of just the the absolute stupidity of idolatry. How how sad it is when we ever place our trust in or begin to worship anything other than God. Because here, the God of Bethel is saying to Jacob in a dream, I've been with you over all this time. I was with you in your father's house. I was with you in the wilderness. I've been with you over all these experiences that you've encountered. And here's the thing. God's love and protection over him was not based on Jacob's obedience to God. There's something profound in that Jacob is accused and misunderstood by the people he served most faithfully. He worked as hard as he could to honor his father-in-law and his family. And after all that work and all that obedience and all of that service, all he gets is jealousy and conflict. And with the God of Bethel, even though he's been disobedient and been unfaithful at times, God loves him and protects him. So it's a way of showing us that God, the real God who is there, is able to treat better those who rebel against him, those who dishonor him, then any idol could ever respond even to its most faithful servant. What a contrast. When you're worshiping an idol, if you give everything you can to it and do everything it asks of you, it cannot reciprocate love or affection or joy. But for the God who is there, the only God who exists, he has more compassion and capacity in his own heart for us when we rebel than any idol can have in our full obedience. Because the very thing that Jacob is accused of and misunderstood for as it relates to Laban, he is guilty of as it relates to his own father. And he knows that. There's a reason he's 400 miles from home. (laughs) Because he's not safe at home. Now for Laban, he can say, no, 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 I didn't trick anyone. I didn't deceive anyone to get what I have today. I have completely obeyed and done everything I should. But the accusation still stands in his own house. You got the blessing of your father Because you tricked him, not because you served him faithfully for 20 years. And so the promise of God at Bethel was a promise to show grace to him and mercy and kindness in spite of himself, in spite of his disobedience, in spite of his unfaithfulness. And yet all of the gods that Laban serves, you, you, you put them all together. There, there's more than just one. There, there's a group of them. We don't know how many. But all of them in the, in the desire to flee can be gathered up and then can be hidden such that she can sit on top of it and Laban could never find them. And it's an amazing contrast. She, his daughter, can sit on them so that he can't see them or access them and you'd look at it and say, how, how silly, <laughs> how pathetic to put your hope and your expectation and your years and your service into gods that could be gathered up and hidden by a single person that can never reward you or love you back in contrast to loving and serving the God who is over everything, who can't be hidden, who can't be sat upon, and who has grace for you even in the worst of your moments. You should all be able to read this and say, why would you give any amount of your time or any amount of your effort to other gods rather than to the God of Bethel? How stupid it is to serve anything or anyone except the one true God. But that's a confrontation that all of us face in whatever are the idols of our heart, whether they're career pursuits or family pursuits or our own educational pursuits, whatever they are, things that we think, if we only get this and if we only serve this, this will fix the problem or make us who we are. That at some point, it's different for each of us, but we realize the false hope that that is and that we've given our time and our effort and our energy to something that can actually never satisfy. And in doing that, we've neglected the one person who can satisfy, the one person who does love us, the one person who does have compassion for us. But here this story begins to change when Jacob is reminded of and can himself testify to the faithfulness of the God of Bethel and how he wants his whole family and all of the mess that that includes (laughs) and all of the complications with two wives and two concubines and going on 11 kids now that we're not sure how they're going to get along with each other and there's already plenty of signs that they might not. But to say, he's not looking at himself for his hope. He's not just thinking, well, I can just read a, a book on blended families and we'll get a game plan and we'll figure this out. No, no, no. He's saying... If God's not on our side, we have no hope. (laughs) If God is on our side, even all of this mess and all of this difficulty and complication, he promises to see us through. He promises to be with us in all of these things. So Laban runs him down, accuses him of fleeing, of making it not possible for him to say goodbye to his kids and his grandkids, And as we already said, he talks a lot, even when God told him not to say much. But eventually they come to a mutual place of understanding. Laban realizes he he can't keep Jacob from going back. And so they do a ceremonial um, action in building up a heap of rocks to say, this is a dividing line between us. That Jacob is gonna go from this place back to his home and Laban will not cross over it to flee after him. And so Jacob can go on this return journey without any fear or expectation of being overtaken by his father-in-law. And so he's given this chance to then say goodbye to his kids and to his grandkids, and so he does that. But they, the contrast has been set. The household gods, completely powerless. Can't even be found when you're looking for them. The God of Bethel alive and well, working in hidden ways that we can't always see, but when we think about it, we can't deny. And so then the next thing that happens is that they both depart. They both return. Laban returns to his own home, which again, if you get to this point in the story, you would imagine, so Laban's the one who has the hard trip home, right? And Jacob gets the easy trip home. Like they've come to this situation, they've realized their differences, they've parted ways, but in fact, no, for Laban, he just gets to go back home and keep doing his thing. For Jacob now to really return home and to be homeward bound now means that with that faith in the God of Bethel, he has to go back and face everything he ran from. So Jacob doesn't use God's grace or mercy extended to him in his disobedience or his unfaithfulness as now a reason to say, see, God doesn't care about what I did. I mean, he just loves me for who I am. He doesn't care how I behave. He doesn't care how I treat people. I can just live my life. No, no, no. He sees God's faithfulness. He sees God's love. And it's the very thing that gives him strength and encouragement to go back and to say, I'm not running anymore. I'm looking for peace in my father's house. And that is all throughout the Bible, how God, when he intervenes in history, is meant to shape us and to challenge us. That we would realize how much he loves us, and that in his love for us, we would feel the strength and the encouragement to go to the difficult places, to the hard situations and to believe that he'll be with us in those things. See, if our gospel is essentially to say that when, what God is going to do, if you follow after God, is he's going to make sure nothing difficult ever happens in your life, no trial ever comes your way, then that faith lasts for about 30 seconds. But if what we believe is that God loves us and that he is with us and now he is going to enable us to deal with the real struggles that exist, with the hurts that have taken place, then we can expect God to do amazing things in and through our lives. And so whether it is that we think about the brokenness of an entire nation like Haiti that has experienced darkness for such a long time, that has had a profound amount of resources and wealth given to it and still it struggles to not say, oh, I guess that means we're not supposed to go and we're supposed to leave. When we see tension between groups of people in our own nation and accusations and misunderstandings, again, that we say, oh, yep, you, just, you shouldn't have anything to do with that. You just run from that. No, don't run from it. That's why you're here. The God who loves you and has amazing mercy and compassion for you wants that to be expressed in strength and in courage to then face the very real issues that each and every one of us have. Because otherwise we're serving a bunch of household gods that on our best of days can never respond back to us and can never bring us joy instead of the opportunity we have to serve the God of Bethel who loves us on the worst of our days and who says, if you're afraid to go there, if you're afraid to ask that question, if you're afraid to deal with that issue, can I go with you? Would you be a little bit less afraid if I was standing right next to you? Oh, yeah. If you promise to be with me, then yeah. Maybe I can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, that we can see so vividly displayed in the life of Jacob, that when he was on the run, that when he was a fugitive, when he was alone, that you appeared to him to help him know that he was loved, that he was cared for, and that he was, in fact, not alone. So we pray that you would also help us to examine our own hearts, to consider whether we continue to give our hopes and expectations and our years of service to things that can never really satisfy or if we've been able in and by your grace to confront the stupidity of our idolatry, to repent from it, and to serve and follow after you, to trust you with our lives and to trust that you desire to have us here for a reason, and that your favor upon us gives us the strength that we need, to go into really difficult situations, to have very hard conversations, to know that we'll be accused and misunderstood along the way, but that that's okay if we can remember and remind each other that we're loved and protected by you. So we pray for an outpouring of your spirit on each and every one of us to help us live and to help us to go into all the situations that you desire us to. In your son's name we pray, amen.